0: Hi, this is Scott, a teacher from Roseville, California. The recent successful fundraiser on this show was made possible by supporters just like me. For details on supporting the show going forward, visit the membership page at bestoftheleft.com. Now welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from All In with Chris Hayes, The Majority Report, Radio Dispatch, The Tom Hartman Program the Young Turks, and activism from best of the left. And just a quick note that, as a teacher, I can see firsthand that letting the testing industry dictate national education policy by insisting on Common Core and then rushing all districts into the online versions of their tests because, face it, standardized curriculum and online tests are far cheaper to distribute in grade, is a great move for their profit margins. And while those major publishers laugh their way to the bank, the prices of colleges and student loans become ever more unaffordable.
1: It is one of the most confusing, controversial issues in the entire nation, and it's percolating at the grassroots level, making its way onto the national stage. It's the Common Core, a set of national educational standards for our kids, and it sounds benign enough But to many on the right, it is anything but.
2: Well, Abraham Lincoln, a liberal, that's what one Common Core aligned math curriculum is set to teach your kids. I think it's one of the basic lies about Common Core that somehow it was state-led and voluntary. It's
3: insidious, and we are not dealing with flesh and bone. We are not dealing with that. We are dealing with
1: evil. Across the country, conservatives are rising up against something they call Obamacore, known to everyone else as the Common Core. Mainstream Republicans are railing against the standards, while fringe elements of the right wing peddle conspiracies of an end to our education system as we know it.
4: This is a total takeover. Two plus two equals five. Teach five-year-olds how to be transgender. If they can get away
1: with that, they can do anything. That's what this is. States and parents are being urged to opt out. In March, Indiana's Republican governor became the first to sign a law getting rid of Common Core, and around a hundred bills to stop, slow, or reverse the Common Core have been introduced in state legislatures this year alone. If you're a Republican, Common Core is toxic. It's
5: very unlikely that a supporter of the Common Core will be the Republican nominee in 2016. And Jeb Bush is one of them. Correct.
1: So, what is the Common Core, and why is it so scary? Simply put, it is a set of national standards for what kids should know in each grade. While there's no required curriculum,
5: Common Core does two basic things. It raises academic standards nationwide, and for the first time, an A will mean the same thing for students everywhere.
1: That may seem harmless, but it is shaping up to be one of the most politically explosive issues of our time. (laughs) Across the country, opposition is mounting against a new set of higher academic standards known as the Common Core, which many teachers say are being imposed too quickly. Children are stressed out and parents are upset. Goofy exam questions are going viral on Facebook, and it all blew up in the last few weeks when parent and comedian Louis C.K. went on a Twitter rant against Common Core and showed up on Letterman. What are the consequences of the standardized testing?
5: Well, the way I understand it, if a school's kids don't test well, they burn the school down. (laughs) So it's pretty high pressure. A lot of pressure on the kids. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. And the tests are written by people that nobody knows who they are. It's very secretive. Mm -hmm. So how do we get here?
1: In America, what kids learn in a classroom has traditionally been determined by states and local school districts. But for decades, reformers have seen this as a weakness. In the 1990s, President Clinton made the case for national
5: standards. Tonight, I issue a challenge to the nation. Every state should adopt high national standards, and by 1999, every state should test every fourth grader in reading and every eighth grader in math to make sure these standards are met.
1: Yet with a Republican-controlled Congress, those policy proposals were met with resistance. But then came this guy.
5: As of this hour, America's schools will be on a new path of reform a new path of results.
1: No child left behind tied federal money to standardized testing. It turns out now, three years after this law was passed, a growing chorus of critics say it's leaving the states and local school systems behind by requiring expensive testing but not paying for it. But it left the testing design to the states, so states could do one of two things raise their students' performance, or lower the bar they had to clear by making the tests easier. Guess which one they started doing. Education reformers then sought to create national standards that everyone would adhere to. A bipartisan coalition of groups, including the National Governors Association and the Council of Chief State School Officers, with money from the Gates Foundation, hired a private company, to help write and research what would become the nation's first Common Core standards. Enter Barack Obama's signature education proposal.
3: With the Race to the Top fund, we will reward states that come together and adopt a common set of standards and assessments.
1: Race to the Top worked with carrots rather than sticks, dangling tons of federal money in front of the states that adopted the Obama administration's education guidelines. And while Common Core wasn't required states knew adopting the standards would help them get that money oh and one more thing teacher evaluations would be tied to students meeting these new standards as of today 44 states plus the district of columbia have adopted the common core standards but very few parents in those states know the long checkered history of national standards the way Common Core has been introduced into most people's homes is in the form of a stressed-out kid laboring over a new set of problems for yet
5: another standardized test. I'm there for them in those moments, saying, go, come on, just look at the problem. And then I look at the problems, and it's like, you know, Bill has three goldfish. Uh, he buys two more. Uh, how many dogs live in London? <laughs> something like
1: that. Right now, we are in the midst of an attempt to change education for millions and millions of kids in this country. The only problem no one is being told what is going on. To many teachers, it means yet another attack after decades of reform that have targeted them. To parents, it means stressed-out kid in an era of high-stakes testing. And for some of America's right wing, it's all an insidious plot for Obama to get into your child's mind.
6: Let's get in on this because, as you know, we have uh, talked quite a bit about the high-stakes testing regime that has been imposed on our school children. First by No Child Left Behind, then by Race to the Top. The latest, hmm, what an innovation in the the context of uh... corporate education reform has been the common core now i am of two minds about the common core i don't know that there's anything necessarily problematic about the standards what is problematic about them is that they have been developed as far as i can tell and implemented on the ground without the proper amount of input from teachers and educators they also provide a very easy way to institute high stakes testing which <clears throat> is at the li- at the very least a big payday for for a lot of corporations who are friends with politicians there's also a, 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 a huge number of other problems involved not just in the fact that these tests are so high-stake, but that so much time, because they are high-stake, is devoted towards teaching towards the test. And, you know, and just talking to my own daughter's teachers, I've just seen what it has done to uh, the morale of teachers and what it's done to the way that kids learn. Never did I believe I would find common cause with... Uh, right-wing Tea Party uh, lawmakers, uh, who apparently are also speaking out against the Common Core and the huge payday involved in implementing the Common Core. But I never, ever understood what was really behind the Common Core until I heard this clip from Florida State Representative Charles Van Zant speaking at the Operation Education Conference in Orlando. Let's hear what he says.
5: Our new Secretary of Education in Florida recently appointed AIR to receive the $220 million contract for end-of-course exam testing and to prepare those tests. Pause it.
6: $220 million. This is a huge business. And understand this is just the tip of the iceberg because they will expand into other grades this uh, testing regime. They then print out here's a way to prepare your kids for common core tests. They, they have about 14 other businesses that will emanate off this first contract. So there's huge money here. So kudos to Charles Van Zant calling out these corporate education reformers.
5: Please go on their website Click the link to what they're doing with youth, and you will see what their agenda really is. They are promoting as hard as they can any youth that is interested in the LGBT agenda. <laughs> yes, that is exactly why. I,
6: but oh, wait, no, wait, what? <laughs>
5: and even name it two-hyphen-s which they define as having two spirits. The Bible says a lot about being double-minded. These people that will now receive 220 million dollars from the state of Florida unless this is stopped will promote double-mindedness in state education. And attract every one of your children to become as homosexual as they possibly can. I'm sorry to report that to you. Randy, thank you for giving me this opportunity to speak. As homosexual as they possibly can.
6: I'm trying now to... That's almost, I have to say, form meets function here because that's almost as screwed up as some of these uh these testing questions are what the hell does it mean to become as homosexual as they can but uh kudos to uh, Charles Van Sant for uh for putting that out there
7: if Billy's becoming as homosexual as he can be at 200 homosexualities per per minute then
8: then That's right
7: and if Jenny is becoming as homosexual as she can, at if a radio... Billy has
8: received three anonymous hand jobs in a rest stop, and yes, Jimmy I guess... has just downloaded the Grinder app, but Jenny, I guess has what experimented... Charles Sant is saying, there's
6: you can be a little homosexual, like homosexual as they can is like when you actually uh, come out of the closet. A little homosexual is when you're just like. You know, uh you don't want them to go full boat. You want them just to keep it in the restroom on I-95 uh, and still be married for 25 years to one of the greatest women. <laughs> and I'd like to bring her up here now.
8: Unbelievable. Wow. Maybe is. a Republican state legislator <laughs> who advocates for the traditional family and hey. also may or may not find himself in situations on... That same i ninety five But the everywhere.
6: Common Core will make them even more homosexual, the bad kind, where they don't feel as bad about themselves, and they're not shamed so racked with shame that they need to uh, impose uh, so they don't their fake morality on others uh, to
8: oppressing so. people who have the same urges that they do.
9: Shame. Boat loads of shame Day after day More of the same Blame. Blame Please lift it off Please take it off Please make it stop
5: Okay, so I have read the mail the stories people often tell about us that we never knew
10: There's so much going on with testing right now because there's because the tests are so ramped up and there is uh, ex- very excitingly, there's so many different like kind of modes of resistance happening right now. I've kept mine kind of New York state focused. Um, unfortunately, I would like to look at the kind of federal level and see what's happening. But so today I at least have an update with a really cool direct action going on. In New York State, a group of public school teachers at the International High School in Prospect Heights, which is a neighborhood in Brooklyn, have uh, written a letter to the chancellor of New York City Public Schools, Carmen Farina. And I'm just going to read their letter because it is awesome. So uh, and this is at standupoptout.wordpress.com. The teacher statement says, Dear Chancellor Carmen Farina, We are New York City public school teachers at the International High School at Prospect Heights. Over 95% of our students have recently arrived to the United States and are learning to read, write, and speak English. After much deliberation and thoughtful discussion with fellow educators, students, and parents, we have decided to abstain from administering the New York City ELA Performance Assessment. ELA is English Language Arts. And the New York City ELA Performance Assessment is one of these big standardized um, assessments. Is
7: that a high-stakes one that determines whether you go to the next grade?
10: It's a good question. Uh, Maybe uh, we'll get to it. Let's read on and we may learn, yeah. The New York City ELA Performance Assessment serves no educational purpose for English language learners or their teachers.
7: That is an awesome, just like, full stop.
10: Full stop, yeah. The test was constructed and formatted without any thought for the 14% of New York City students for whom English is not their first language. The level of English used in the pretest administered in the fall was so far above the language levels of our recent immigrant student population that it provided little or no information about their language or academic proficiencies. Despite their best efforts and determination, the vast majority of our students receive zero points, even though their classwork demonstrates increasing mastery of both English and academics. Accordingly, the test is an inadequate measure of both student learning and instructional effectiveness. What is the point of spending valuable lesson time on an assessment that does not inform instruction?
7: The point is order. Law and order.
10: The point is, sounds like your school's failing. We'll close it or we'll do something else. So just reading a little bit more because this letter is so awesome. It's great. When we administered the test in the fall, the experience was traumatic for both students and teachers. Ultimately, the lessons our students learned were about discouragement and failure. Their first experience as high school students taking a standardized test set the stage for future anxiety and confusion in subsequent testing situations. Participating in this assessment has and will continue to negatively impact their learning experience and their confidence in their own abilities to succeed. Our students believe in the education system in our country, and they deserve a fair chance. This test, like many standardized tests, teaches them that no matter how hard they work, they will fail. And then they have a bulleted list of their objections. Our objections to the performance assessment, to the ELA performance assessment, include uh, it actively ignores the need to make accommodations for students who are learning English, such as providing reading out loud and rephrasing instructions, providing translations, etc. Such accommodations for English language learners are routinely given in other testing situations. The ELA performance assessment is intended to measure growth for people who already know English. Our students' growth will not be measured in this test because the test was not designed for new English language speakers. It was designed for those already fluent in English.
7: You know, I don't even get why they don't like this test. It's so, their, their points are so abstract and <laughs> difficult to, what's the word? And you know, What's the word I'm looking for? Well, whatever
10: and irrelevant to the student population not only of their high school but of new york city what yeah. their their students are learning english 14% of the, all of the students in new york city are learning english well we want to know about the ones who aren't learning english
7: exactly you know as as somebody who's lived in new york for a, a while now i can speak for all of us in english <laughs> When I say Ellis Island was a thing of the past, yeah. we we remember how great Ellis Island was, and then it stopped, and now New York City doesn't have immigrants anymore, and I think that that all New Yorkers are are incredibly happy about that.
10: Yeah, and you know, you're in America, we speak i can't even i can't even in satire say it but i will say that i would like these testing people the people who create these tests and expect english language english language learners to do them i would like them to have to take a high stakes, high stakes test in spanish yeah I would like I would like that to happen very much. I would like their keeping their jobs to be dependent on them taking a high ta- high stakes test in Spanish. Yeah. Boy, that makes me happy just thinking about it.
7: I can't even say I would like that to happen in Spanish.
10: <laughs> and you've studied Spanish for years. Oh yeah. Um, just a few more because this letter is just really doing it for me. Our students need every minute of instructional time they can get, and we work hard to make that time productive. This test is simply not a good use of their time or ours. Finally, 50% of parents and guardians in our school community have opted their students out of the exam. That's awesome. 50%. percent have opted out. We can't, in good conscience, as educators dedicated to the learning of our students and welfare of our school communities, we are not administering the test. Skipping forward just a little bit, we applaud your memo to principals instructing that the families' right to opt out. Uh, that they respect families' rights to opt out their children of the test, and we appreciate the respect you've already shown to educators as professionals and look forward to the changes you will make regarding the use of high-stakes testing in our schools. We ask that you remove the New York ELA performance exam in favor of an assessment created by educators who best know the individual needs of their students and classrooms. Out of your seat and up to the board by Xbox 44. What was the date of the First World War? What is noun in for? Well, well, I be a teacher, yeah,
8: yeah, teacher. I be a teacher, well, well, well,
4: well, 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 you better study in the classroom, or else you are never gonna pass. When
10: everyone has graduated, you still be sitting in this class. Stop looking over at your girl.
3: I've been rolling this around. I see this in my own family. I know, I, I know so many people, some of the, the younger people who work, you know, with us and for us. This is such, this, this is, and, and it, it hit me today. I mean, I've, I've kind of said this before, but it just really hit me hard today about student debt. That literally never in the history of the developed world, never before, never in the United States, not in any other developed nation, Never in the history of the developed world has an entire generation had to go into debt just to get an education and thus get a job. Until now. Back in January, 31-year-old Tony Muzzotti, who at the time owed around sixty grand in student loan debt to Sally May, always made his payments on time, was told that he had to immediately make a payment of ten thousand dollars or face asset seizures. Why? Well, because his grandmother, who was the co-signer on his student loans, just died. Christopher Kibler was told by Sally May that he had to immediately pay back nearly $22,000 in student loan debts after his father, the co-signer, his loans had passed away. I'm the co-signer on one of my kids' student loans. God forbid, you know. Muzadi and Kibler are just two of the many victims of what the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau refers to as auto defaults, when banks immediately say that private student loan debts are in default because of the death or bankruptcy of a cosigner. This auto default practice is just one of the many ways that big banks and Wall Street executives are making billions of dollars off an entire generation of struggling debt-ridden Amer- Americans. We have $1.18 trillion in outstanding loon, uh, student loan debt in the United States. We've we'd never, ever had anything even remotely close to this. There are more than 40 million Americans with student loan debt. Forty million. That's more than the entire population of Canada, Poland, North Korea, Australia. And more than 200 other countries. I didn't know there were 200 countries. Only 197, I guess there must be. And of those 40 million borrowers, almost 7 million have already defaulted on on their debt. I mean, this is how bad it's gotten. The average 25-year-old American who has student debt, the average debt that that kid is holding has risen kid, 25, whatever, has risen 91% just in the last 10 years. Average college debt per person is over $23,000. And the result of this is that an entire generation of Americans is completely screwed. They can't start a family, they can't buy a house, and if you don't, you know i mean typically people who are retiring in their 60s the equity that they have i mean this is this is where most american household equity exists the equity that they have is in their homes and the the way that you get to the point where you've got enough equity that you know you've got a home that's worth when you retire maybe borrowing against or selling or, you know, whatever, you know, some equity is you buy it, you buy your first house in your 20s. And then over the next 40 years as you're making payments, you eventually pay it off or, you pay, you know, you keep moving up in housing and each step along the way you get a little more equity and you roll it into the next house and you roll it into the next house. And we actually subsidize this with our tax code. But now we have an entire generation of Americans. I mean, literally an entire generation of Americans. People typically younger than 30 years old, many of them, you know, most of them under 25 years old, who don't have the ability to build that kind of equity and don't have the ability to to build that kind of equity because they're, you know, I... (laughs) They can't take on a, a, a $70,000 mortgage because they've got $30,000 in student debts. I mean, the national average is in the high 20s, like 27000 or something. This is a morally criminal conspiracy that's been going on for the past 33 years, ever since Ronald Reagan came to Washington, and it's been a three-step process. First, as governor of California, Reagan did away with that state's free college education program um, that had let tens of thousands of Californians get an affordable and quality education. Others across the country followed his lead. As soon as he came to Washington, Reagan continued this all-out assault on affordable college education by slashing federal aid to higher education institutions across the country, including America's land-grant colleges that have been providing affordable and quality education since they were first established by Abraham Lincoln, the Morrill Act, 1862. When Reagan came into office only about 20% of the cost of tuition was uh, of cost of going to college was paid as tuition by the student. The other 80% was paid by governments and endowments. Today it's the exact reverse. So all these students are in debt. We've got an entire generation that can't afford to start a house, can't afford to start a family, can't afford to buy a house, can't afford to by the time they're 50, 60, they're not going to have the equity to retire that the generations before them had. No other industrialized country in the world has indebted an entire generation just for student loan debts. Next, Reagan laid the groundwork for the federal government to get involved in student loan business. And thanks to his new ed policies and and putting Bill Bennett in as his hostile education secretary of labor, their education, federal government has had an incentive to hand out loans to hundreds of thousands of students because of interest on those loans. It'll be government revenue. This was the whole Reagan thing. And finally, our backwards trade policies that have been in place for the last 33 years have also devastated America's lost generation. Believe it or not, there used to be a time in this country when you could graduate from high school, get a good-paying blue-collar job, and provide for your family and save for your retirement. But thanks to decades of job-killing trade policies, that's no longer the case. Now, in order to become part of the middle class, to have any kind of a shot at the American dream, you have to go to college. Which means that you have to strap yourself with thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars in student loan debt to get that degree and get that white college job. So forget about getting married and getting a house and starting to build the, the kind of equity that you'll be able to retire with when you're in your 60s. And the worst part of all this is that we Americans, uniquely, I mean, we're the only country in the world that has this problem. We have done this to ourselves. We shot ourselves in the foot by listening 33 years ago to Ronald Reagan, by buying this whole Reaganomics idea that education should be a commodity and something that somebody can make a buck off of, instead of thinking that education is part of the commons. We need to own up to our own mistakes. We need to start calling America's student, student loan debt crisis what it really is, a massive, devastating, trillion-dollar, morally criminal conspiracy committed by Wall Street bankers, libertarian billionaires, and Reaganomics devotees. And then maybe we can undo some of the damage to an entire generation. We should declare a debt jubilee on all outstanding student loan debt in America. Just wipe the slate clean. They shouldn't have had to go to debt in the first place. Abraham Lincoln started the the nationwide free schools. Thomas Jefferson, on his tombstone, he said it was more important to put on his tombstone that he started the University of Virginia, which was America's first free college, than that he was President of the United States. And his tombstone, which he designed, says he was the author of the Virginia Declaration of, of Religious Freedom, the Declaration of Independence, and the founder of the University of Virginia. Free college has been part of America's tradition literally since the Jefferson presidency.
2: Warren continues to fight for the little guy. She is proposing legislation that would allow students to refinance their student loan debt, which is a really big deal. Now, currently, under current regulation, uh, a lot of the student loan debt that students have taken out cannot be refinanced. And according to the proposal, and according to Senator Warren, when interest rates drop, people can refinance their home, they can refinance their business debt. It's regarded as a smart move for any consumer or business. But student borrowers are prohibited from doing that under most programs. This bill says we're going to change that and let them refinance that down to current low rates. And that's a really big deal, especially when you consider the fact that, first of all, students can't get rid of student loan debt if they file for bankruptcy. And on top of that, student loan debt has already surpassed uh, credit card debt. More than $1 trillion in student loan debt exists, and it's actually having a really negative impact on our economy because it stops young people from going out there, buying homes, buying cars, and doing what's necessary to start their lives
9: her point in this case is nearly indisputable of course it will be disputed and it will probably lose you will lose because which is sad right because that's the powerful in this country run our politics you know the whole story right so they're not going to be in favor of this they don't want to reduce Tetra on students they want to increase that on students because they make money off of that so but if you break down her logic like if i got a house and everybody knows this. You've got a house, you got a mortgage, right? If the rates are different, then you can renegotiate and get a lower rate. Why, Why shouldn't we... they be allowed to do that for student debt? If I got a debt on the house, I could do it. Why can't you do it on student debt? That's crazy. And then you have this extra thing of like you can't get rid of student debt, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, uh, Donald Trump has filed for bankruptcy many times for his companies. And whenever they ask him about it, he goes, what are you talking about? That's a savvy business move.
6: Mm-hmm. Like
9: I had a lot of debt, and then I filed for bankruptcy, and then I didn't have it. Ha-ha! <laughs> <laughs> Joke's on you. And the guy who gave me that debt knew that he was taking on a certain amount of risk, and that uh, risk exploded on him. Now I have less debt. That's he's, And he is very insistent that he's a very smart businessman for doing that. Now, if students try to do that... God, that's deadbeat, immoral, how dare you! And we won't even let you. We won't let you get out of it through bankruptcy and you can't even lower it even if the interest rates are lower for all the kinds of debt at this point.
2: Yeah, so Senator Warren uh, hit the nail on the head when she made the argument that when we're giving students student loans uh, we should see it as an investment in the future, not a money-making opportunity for the federal government. But now it's become a money-making opportunity. So if you look at student loan debt from 2007 to 2012, the government is set to make $66 billion in revenue or profit off of those uh, uh, student loans in interest, right? So, you know, Senator Warren will say, look, some people are actually upset about the fact that we'll lose that money if we allow these students to refinance. So what can we do? What can we fill that federal budget gap and what she is suggesting which is even better is that uh we should enact the Buffett rule which is increase taxes on the top earners in the country those who are making a million dollars or more get rid of tax loopholes make sure that the wealthiest people in the country are paying their fair share
9: so look if you're already making over a million dollars that's pretty good now that doesn't mean we should take you know a disproportionate amount there's a limit right but we're nowhere near that limit we you know we have incredibly low tax rates compared to the rest of the developed world right so can we raise it by a little bit for the specific purpose of providing opportunity for the next generation so that they can become millionaires and by the way also contribute in taxes and hence in some ways that would be you know what trickling down right and then that would create an opportunity to bring in more revenue down the road. Plus it helps Americans live the American dream, etc. But there's no way in today's society we're going to do that because our government is run by those same millionaires. They are the top donors to our politicians. They own our politicians. In fact, Princeton did a research study recently that showed that uh the public opinion did not matter for about 1800 issues that they studied. Over a period of about forty years in this country, no effect on the politicians, but the uh, the what they call the financial elite that give political donations, their opinion mattered completely. It was totally correlated to what the policy outcomes were. So the people who she's proposing to raise taxes on, it doesn't matter how logical or fair her proposals are, they're not going to allow it.
2: And you know, I just want to make a really quick point about how. Principal Senator Warren is because she's a smart woman. She knows that this isn't going to pass, right? But she's proposing it anyway to make her stance known, and that means that she's not willing to allow corporations to have the same power over her that other politicians do. And I love that. I absolutely love that. She's giving corporations the middle finger, and that's a really, really brave thing to do in this political climate.
9: Right. You might think, why is that so brave? That was, sounds like it's incredibly popular. It is incredibly popular. Because then your donations dry up. Why do you think all those other senators don't do it? Because they couldn't think of it? No, because they're scared to death that they're going to lose their donations and lose their next election. Because that's how you win elections. 95% of the time, the person with more money wins the election. So that's why this is brave. That's why we like Elizabeth Warren. And that's why the establishment can't stand her. Oh,
2: God. I really want her to run for president.
9: Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. And so sometimes people ask me, hey, if Wolfpack wins, what happens next? So if we get money out of politics, you know, we get the amendment to do that. Well, this is what happens next. Do you have any idea how easy that would be to pass if you, if while politicians were not controlled by their donors, if, they, if you took it to the American people and the representatives actually represented people, that would pass, in like overwhelmingly, you would be shocked at how easy it would be to pass. You think that's like, oh, that's utopia. That's not going to happen. It did happen. It happened for forty to fifty years in this country where we had domestic politics that actually represented. The American people. That's how Ralph Nader got Richard Nixon to pass, uh, laws requiring seatbelts, OSHA to protect workers at their jobs so they don't get injured or hurt or killed, uh, and even Nixon passed the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency. That's how strong progressives were, because that was, because they represented the people.
3: Mm-hmm.
9: That was pre-Supreme Court rulings that flooded politics with money. wolf packcom and then, Champions of the people like Elizabeth Warren can get real power and bring you real change.
11: You've reached today's activism segment. Now that you're informed and angry, here's a glimmer of hope to remind you that not absolutely everything is completely terrible all of the time. Though do stick around for the but wait, there's more activism. Today's update, the student debt payback cap. Barack Obama has signed fewer executive orders than any president since the turn of the 20th century, for 115 years, in fact. He does seem to be reaching the breaking point with Republican intransigence recently, though, which Speaker Boehner is attempting to sue him over. No kidding. It seems signing an executive order capping student loan repayments at 10% of the borrower's monthly income put the speaker over the edge. Last month, President Obama offended the Speaker and his party by expressing support for Senator Elizabeth Warren's student loan refinancing bill, while expanding a 2010 law to provide much-needed short-term relief to 5 million graduates struggling to eat and pay their tuition bills simultaneously. Now, I don't always agree with the President, but this one is a win worth celebrating. But wait, there's more. Then it was Congress's turn. Warren's bill was three votes shy of the filibuster proof. 60 votes now needed to do anything in the goddamn worthless Senate, which doesn't even come close to representing the democratic process anymore. Thanks to piece of shit Republicans who are dead set on bringing our government to a complete standstill by abusing the filibuster in record obliterating fashion because they can't win a single policy debate. So they have to resort to taking their ball and going home. Now, to be precise, the actual vote was 56 to 38, but Majority Leader Harry Reid is off the hook for his no vote, which was delivered on antiquated, annoying-to-explain-procedural rules he followed to ensure the bill can be reintroduced later this summer. You can just trust me, or feel free to read more in the segment notes. Now, the White House has estimated that this totally offensive to Republicans bill would have saved individual borrowers at least $2,000 while paying back their loans, a nearly 10% savings for the average college grad. How awful that must have been to imagine for wealthy legislators. But wait, there's even more. That two grand is still on the table. Here's how you can help. Track legislative efforts expected from Senator Warren with support from Majority Leader Reid later this summer at higherednotdebt.org. At that same site, you can calculate the savings Congress cost you by siding with millionaires and billionaires. The Huffington Post has kindly compiled the list of no votes, minus Harry Reid's allowance, along with the Twitter handles of those no's. Links are, of course, in the segment notes. Feel free to liberally tweet the amount you will save when your senators change their minds later in the session directly at those senators. You might even give them an early thank you for backing Senator Warren's refinancing plan. Tweeting them while approving your loan payment each month is a particularly effective time to let your senators know just how strongly you feel, respectfully, of course. We'll bring you another update when the bill is reintroduced, and you can always bug Katie on the social media feeds. As she will directly benefit from the refinancing legislation, you can bet she'll be keeping a close eye on it. Should you hear back from your senator, some of them actually have well tended social media feeds, call into the show or post on our Facebook page to let us know. It is absolutely encouraging to the group to hear that movement is happening and change is possible. We only need three more yes votes. How hard could that possibly be?
7: Activism.
9: out from in front of the television bust out of your self-imposed media prison there's a whole big world out there y'all and some serious stuff is going down civil war intolerance AIDS, obliteration the usual madness but not enough frustration about what's troubling earth's nations the spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days and it will not be your saving grace why not
10: replace your dreams of gracing life's stage
3: with I think that young people realizing that graduating from college with an average, a median debt of $29,000 in the United States means that for the first decade or two decades of their lives, they can't buy a house, their first house, where they put down a couple thousand dollars and, and just start making payments that are, you know, for the first few years mostly interest and over time, eventually they end up with equity. That they can't do that. They can't start a family. They can't. You know, people are doing things, all these things, later and later, because of the the economy. Because the rich are getting richer, and because the average working middle class American and working class Americans are screwed. And then Congress, in their infinite wisdom, back in the middle of the Bush administration, I think it was around two thousand six, said, "Oh, let's reform the bank reform." Right? Be careful. Whatever they use that word. Let's reform the bankruptcy laws so that. If somebody wants to declare bankruptcy, I mean, it used to be if you declared bankruptcy, the one thing you could not discharge in a bankruptcy petition, the one thing you couldn't get rid of, the one debt you couldn't leave behind, was your taxes. Well, they said, let's add student loans to that. And suddenly, student, student loan debt became like gold, right? And so the banksters, everybody jumped into this, and everybody got in the business of it, including our federal government. And we've got this giant scam going on, where student loan debt has exploded. And you've got a whole new generation that is indentured basically indentured servants. And they're starting to say, no more. The debt jubilee for student debt. Or at least let's re let's re reform our bankruptcy laws so the students can can declare bankruptcy on their student debt, or their parents who co signed for it can discharge it. I mean, frankly, I think we should have an absolute jubilee. We should wipe it all out. We should say, you know, before Reagan, college in, for most people in the United States, college was free or so close to free that you could go to college with a part-time job at the level of washing dishes in a local restaurant, which I did. Or being a waitress in a local restaurant, which is what my wife did back in the 60s, back in the late 60s. This was before Reagan came into office. And in California, you could go to college for free, and in several other states, too. In large part because of what Abraham Lincoln did when he established the land-grant colleges, over 50 of them around the United States. Free colleges. Invest in the intellectual infrastructure of our country. And I think we need to look back and say, you know, when Reagan ended free college in California in the 1970s, saying, why should I pay for the education of these young people when they then go out and protest against me and call me names? Which is essentially what he said. I mean, you can find the exact quotes out there, but that's pretty close to it. It was a spiteful thing. There was no thought to this. There was no, you know, gee, our young people are our future. They are our intellectual infrastructure. None of that on the part of Reagan. When he said that in the 70s and he destroyed free college in California. And then he moved into the White House and he made William Bennett the first Secretary of Education. William Bennett, who had, who had in the 1980 campaign for president, had thrown his hat in the ring on the platform of ending the Department of Education and all federal funding for schools. Remember, back in that day in 1980, of the cost of going to college was paid for by state, federal, and local governments and school endowments. Students only, tuition, the the tuition that you paid only represented about 20% of the total cost of of your education. So it was affordable. Now it's completely reversed. After 33 years of Reaganomics and Bill Bennett's economic education policies, 80% of the cost of going to school is paid for by you, the student, and only 20% is paid for by the government. Which is insane. we got a trillion dollars in student loan debt. We should be investing not just in our bridge infrastructure, but in our future infrastructure, our intellectual infrastructure, our young people. The GI Bill actually made a profit. The amount of tax revenue paid by people who had increased their earning power because they went to college on the GI Bill more than paid for the GI Bill. We know from the history of the United States, when you give people free education as a government, you make a profit.
8: Education should be free. The rich get richer because the poor's uneducated. Civil degradation. Cut their wings, and there's no way of elevate. It. An ignorant mind could be devastating. Especially if you think real life's on the television. I speak my mind and I'm dedicated. We need education, education to raise a smart, better nation. And that's the truth. For God, my witness, there should be free healthcare and college tuition. The possibilities are endless. 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 I never knew I was a chemist. Put in a college course made for beginners I might just come up with the cure for influenza We all keep learning until they rest our souls The brain's still working at a 100 years old So why I gotta pay for the knowledge you hold That's why the world's cold and the economy's gone Free education, free education What the people need is free education If you are graduating from a uh, university
6: It's happening all around now, I think, isn't it? That time of the year? That time of the year. I'm not going to say I'm available to fill in for uh, Condi Rice at the last minute if you need me to, but available. Um, the average class, the average
8: 2014 graduate. <laughs> I'm sorry. I What's just that? think like from like the Rutgers class of, you know, America, security and opportunity in the 21st century with Condoleezza Rice, to I have little sleep, expand social security (laughs) in the 21st century. And
6: F. Condi Rice. And F. Condi Rice. (laughs) That would
8: be be a much more popular speech. uh, No doubt. The first
6: thing I would say to them is party, but enjoy your sleep. Because I got news for you.
8: It's a pleasure to be here
6: today because I'm away with my away from my
8: kids. That's right. <laughs> it's not about not partying. It's not about not destroying your adrenal system. But it's also being mindful that in the future you're going to be destroying your adrenal system, but That's for right. no fun reason. I look out
6: amongst you students, and I can only think of my own children and how they have shackled me <laughs> and will cause
8: me... The same, um one more tangent. Do you remember Al Franken had a bit once where, you know, he used to do those bits where he's just, a, a, and like an asshole, and he would, he did this thing where he was supposed to be invited, he thought he was invited to Harvard, but he realized he was invited to like the Hartford Technical State Institute, and the whole, Graduation speech is like, I apologize in advance. I had written this speech for a Harvard, so you <laughs> probably won't understand anything I'm saying. <laughs> and he just proceeds to insult them the whole time. It was very funny. All right,
6: let's go ahead with this. The average class of 2014 uh, will graduate with student loan debt of about $33,000. This is uh, analysis uh... done by advisors, a group of websites playing about about planning and paying for college even after adjusting for inflation that's nearly the double the amount borrowers had to pay back twenty years ago and i had a graphic gosh i don't know where that went of just how much tuition at state colleges has gone up in the past ten fifteen years we've talked about this this There is no doubt that when you raise the cost of tuition at public schools, the cheaper schools, it pushes, it puts pressure on private universities as well to raise their prices, because they can. Because the calculation is we can charge X percentage more than the lowest-cost competitor. And, and then, of course, you step in and you make uh, more loans available, and you make these loans impossible to discharge, even under bankruptcy, and that's what you get. 70% of this year's bachelor degrees recipients are leaving school with student loans up from less than half of the uh, the graduates in the class of 1994. That is also stunning. In 20 years, we've seen an explosion of 20%. 20 percentage points, I should say. 2014 rested the, I guess, dubious title of most indebted graduating class ever from the graduating class of 2013. Now, we still know that uh, a college degree gets you higher pay uh, and increases your chance of being employed not to mention the fact that a college degree makes you a better citizen, or theoretically. theoretically. 2012, the most recent year for which data are available, workers with just a bachelor's degree were making a median salary of $47,000 a year, while the average student loan balance for people under 30 was $21,000. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. It's affecting uh, first-time buying. I mean, uh, people know what the implications are of this. And basically, between the IRS and the Treasury Department, we are the uh, nation's largest debt collectors.
8: I just, I almost wonder, I mean, in some respects, if it's even ethical to pay back these debts. In some respects. Like I I I just think that there needs to be some type of collective action on this because it's just a it's stunning and there's no economic there there's not even within a flawed logic can you justify it. I mean like prices just keep going up. Loans are made available, there's no choice because it's still the right decision to do if you can do it, and it's just a funnel. I mean that's it.
6: We've had this debate on this program uh, on multiple occasions. Libertarians will tell you that, the, um, that the, the increase in government loans and backstop private loans has added to the inflation rate of universities. While I imagine there's some of that, but the data simply doesn't bear it out. That's
8: a the, secondary effect.
6: The, the, the data does not bear it out. But I will concede that I think student loans – by the government, are inefficient. There's no reason we should be making money, because the government does make money, significant money, off of people going to college. What we should be doing is spending more federal dollars to pump more money into state universities. Every dollar. And we should start with every dollar that comes in from a student loan should then be sent back to the state specifically earmarked to offset tuition costs at state colleges and universities. And then we should get rid of the student loan program the day after we start uh, putting more money into higher education and guarantee multiple free options in every state or as close to free as possible.
4: This is Dan in Sheffield Lake. Uh, I'm calling about your summer hours. I have a bit of an issue with that. Um, Not that you shouldn't be taking summer hours, but why aren't you taking, like, summer weeks? You work all year. We love your show. I think Americans work too hard as it is. So why don't you take a couple weeks off and relax? That would be my advice. But anyway, keep up the good work. Stay awesome.
11: Well, boy, do I have some good news for Dan because, you know, as I mentioned when I first announced this sort of summer hours schedule that I'm on right now, uh, there's a family vacation involved that is now in full swing. And trust me, I am definitely doing my best to sort of take it easy and not work very much. But yeah, I mean, you know, I, I like work. So working on vacation is not, not all bad, but I, you know, I, I hear you. But what I did not foresee is just how bad the internet connection is where i am so if you're hearing my voice right now it means i've overcome the enormous odds and gotten this episode posted with a a tenuous at best uh, connection to the internet so you know i'm thinking with with that sort of uh, hindrance in my way and now thankfully with the permission of dan you know I i think maybe i'll take the next episode off as well um And then, you know, the schedule will start to continue. There'll be maybe, maybe one more, uh, rerun episode than I initially expected, but, you know, having an internet based, uh, program such as this and not having a very good uh, connection to the internet makes things difficult. So, you know, just hang tight and I'll see what I can get delivered to you down the feed.
4: Hey, Jay, it's Wade. I was a little emotional when I called you last on the Iraq thing and, uh, I said that, you know, the invasion of Iraq was the worst thing in history. I probably was offensive to some people. I retract that statement. It's a little emotional when I said it. I don't know why I like to call you when I get emotional. on just too. But my response to David is uh, I appreciate the, the reading list, but I have a history degree. And uh, my advice to anybody would be to not go read up on history books. Smedley Butler wrote a great book. It had a lot, of, a lot of good information in it, but that book's not going to win you an argument. It's not going to change policy. The one thing I've learned about history is that we never learn from history. Instead of reading history books, your time would better be spent putting pen to paper than in actual letters to your representatives. I've done that myself. I do it once, and that's going to change the course of policy much better than an understanding of the history. Because unless you're going to embark on it on a, on a serious study of the subject. You're just going to do a half-assed job of it. And a little bit of knowledge can be a bad thing. So, you don't win arguments with history. It's just People either don't care, don't believe you, or they say this time will be different. That's just, just standard response. It's like arguing with people about religion. You just, you just can't do it. It feels good. It's not going to change anything. You want to do action. Action is the democratic process. It did help us. I believe that the the, the overwhelming response of the American people kept us out of Syria. That's a good thing. And that's a concrete, tangible thing that we did. We're not in Syria. Good. And that was not caused by reading history books. That was caused by people writing letters, protesting, etc. That would be my response. Jay, appreciate it. Have a good one.
11: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So I definitely have a response to Wade on the value of synthesizing information that you've learned in the past – going uh, you know to use going forward. Uh, but first, I want to uh, finish off the fundraiser by thanking the last uh, group of people who, who donated there at, at the very end. So I'm gonna get through this list and then we'll be done with it. Andy from Belchertown, Massachusetts, Cat from Berlin, Germany, Stephen from St. Charles, Illinois, Alexander from Millsboro, Delaware, Rosa from Denver. Graham from Sonoma, California, Tim from Madison, Wisconsin, David from Taunton, Massachusetts, David from El Cerrito, California, Kate from Philadelphia, Philip from Denver, Bruce from Moyertown, Virginia, Kevin from Oro Valley, Arizona, Liz from Lakewood, Colorado, William from Phoenix, John from Costa Mesa, California, Chris from Charlotte, North Carolina, Stacy from Mayville, Wisconsin, Sawyer from Columbus, Ohio, Dylan from Fort Bliss, Texas, Steven from Nashville, Tennessee, Kate from McHenry, Illinois, Ronald from Baltimore, Day Peter from Alhambra, California, James from Greenbelt, Maryland, Maria from Indianapolis, Kiki from Oakland, Kenneth from San Diego, Marianne from Philadelphia, Allison from Farnhamville, Iowa, Amelia from Geneva, Switzerland. I think a couple of people heard me say I got excited when uh, you know the, the foreign addresses pop up and then they decided to uh, donate because Martin from, I- I'm going to go with Ulm, Germany, but I probably pronounced that wrong. Uh, my apologies. Uh, Jodel from New York, New York, Vicky from Depot Bay, Oregon. Nathan from Seattle, Washington, Ben from Greensboro, North Carolina, Laura from Alhambra, California, Michael from Marblehead, Massachusetts, Daniel from Oviedo, Florida, Mary from St. Charles, uh, Montana, Peter from Springfield, Montana. Joel from Denver, Colorado, Keith from uh, Shaker Heights, Ohio, Fidencio from Rock Falls, Illinois, Michelle from Seattle, Washington, Benjamin from Iowa City, Iowa, Dom from uh, the Czech Republic. That's exciting. Uh, David from Gresham, Oregon, Dominique from Magna, Utah, Adam from Baltimore, Samantha from Boston, Glenn from Blacksburg, Virginia, Andy from New Orleans, sorry, Nolens, Louisiana, Dan from Yorba Linda, California, Mike from Mike Tidwell from Tacoma Park, Maryland, uh, who is my old boss. We actually heard him in the previous episode. It's probably some sort of conflict of interest there, but we'll just sweep that under the rug. Uh, Dave from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, BC from Portland, Oregon, Katie from Vancouver, Canada, and Meridi from Girdwood, Arkansas. And that is everyone. So huge thanks to everyone who who donated to the fundraiser. It was uh, a a success beyond my uh, wildest expectations. And, and, you know, and thanks for everyone uh, for chipping in. So now to respond to Wade and the idea that uh, learning history is not valuable to helping make decisions going forward. Unsurprisingly, I disagree with that idea and, uh, To help prove my point, I'm going to actually read this article. I just read this yesterday, and it has nothing to do with history or politics or anything, but it's still going to help make the point. And so this article is from uh, fastcompany.com. The article is called The Secret to Creativity, Intelligence, and Scientific Thinking. And so from somewhere in the middle of the article, it's talking about basically how we think and how – what we experience influences how we think and put ideas together. So it, it, uh, it begins from in the middle. It says, aside from physical connectivity within the brain, being able to make connections between ideas and knowledge we hold in our memories can help us to think more creatively and produce higher quality work. It says, Steve Jobs is an obvious person to reference whenever you're talking about creativity or innovation, so I wasn't surprised to find that he has spoken about making connections before. This great quote is from a Wired interview in 1996, and Steve Jobs says, creativity is just connecting things. When you ask creative people how they did something, they feel a little guilty because they didn't really do it. They just saw something. And then Jobs went on to explain that experience is the secret to being able to make connections so readily. So he continues... That's because they were able to connect experiences they've had and synthesize new things. And the reason they were able to do that was that they've had more experiences or they have thought more about their experiences than other people. And then the article continues, Maria Popova is arguably one of the best examples and proponents of what she calls combinatorial creativity, that is, connecting things to create new ideas. So she says, in order for us to truly create and contribute to the world, we have to be able to connect countless dots, to cross-pollinate ideas from a wealth of disciplines, to combine and recombine these pieces and build new castles. And then the article continues uh, about Maria saying she's given a talk on this at a Creative Mornings event before and made some great points. Being able to read about a wide range of topics is often one of the most important elements. My favorite part of this talk is Popova's uh, Lego analogy, where she likens the dots of knowledge we have to Lego building blocks. So Maria said, the more of these building blocks we have and the more diverse their shapes and colors, the more interesting our castles will become. So that's all I'll read from the article. But do you see where we're going with this? Reading history books and you know, helping influence policy going forward by writing letters to your legislatures are not mutually exclusive things. And it should be clear that doing one helps inform the other. You know, if we have a totally uninformed populace with no understanding of history, then how intelligent are those letters to your uh, congressman going to be? So this article is talking about you know creativity and creating sort of projects and art and and science, but you know in politics we create and invent our own future through the policies that we put in place, and the way to get the best possible policies is to have the most educated possible uh, population. A very convenient today's episode was about education, you know, and so to be clear, reading history books isn't necessarily about Having a store of knowledge that makes you feel good and helps you win an argument or even attempt to win an argument. Wade would say that, you know, it doesn't even help do that. But it's not about that. It's about having as much knowledge as possible so that you can synthesize all of that knowledge and experience you have into new ideas. For how to proceed in the future, you know, the, the example that comes to mind is you know anyone proposing a, a you know a, a carbon tax cap and trade system for capping carbon dioxide is just repeating the policy that we put in place uh, back in the first Bush administration to cap uh, you know those aerosol problems that were uh, you know, eating through the ozone layer that that whole thing, so yeah, like nothing nothing is original. The only way we uh, can even make a halfway educated guess about how to proceed in the future is by understanding the past. Now, I can certainly understand Wade's sort of uh, frustration and disillusionment with the fact that humans never seem to learn from history, but it's certainly no cause to uh, dissuade people from even trying to understand history. So that's gonna be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com/slash best of left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So Coming to you from inside the Beltway at outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every fourth day or so during this uh, summer hour schedule from bestoftheleft.com.
6: And it's a and shame
9: how we get so trained. She